Hey there, friends. David Lightbringer here to apologize for lying to you at the end of the last video. That's right, I said there'd only be one more Melisandre's Secrets video, but I kept writing. Now you have two more videos to look forward to. That's actually not too bad, is it? In the first three videos, Shadow of Relore, Fire Others, and Fire Whites, we basically picked up the Red Temple, turned it upside down, and shook out all of its secrets. And I was attempting to make a final video to cover all the delightful and wicked things Melisandre might do with all this magic at the wall. However, one specific thing that I think she's going to do, create a Night's Watch company of Fire Whites to fight alongside Jon Snow, who will also be a Fire White, seemed like it would make a nice, compact theory video on its own. And so here we are with Melisandre's Secrets 4, Fire White's Watch. Then in part five, Chosen of Relore, we'll focus specifically on John and Melisandre, covering everything from the ins and outs of John's impending resurrection, to Mel's desire to make more shadow babies, definitely one with John, and also the idea of Melisandre perhaps completing her transformation into a being of pure fire magic, which is what I'm referring to as a fire other. If you haven't watched the first three videos, I do recommend you check those out first, especially the Fire Whites video. Although this video will mostly make sense, even if you haven't. Go ahead and do me a solid and click that like button. Make sure your subscription bell is set to all, because again, YouTube changes it on you. And thanks in advance for leaving me a comment about who you think will join Jon Snow's Fire White's Watch. If you'd like to support my YouTube channel and keep me making videos, then you can check out the links below to our Patreon campaign, our PayPal if you prefer a one-time donation, or you can even become a channel member now with the Join button right next to the Subscribe button. Now let me tell you all about the new and more zombified company of fiery Night's Watch Rangers that Melisandre will soon be creating. As I was saying, this entire series has been essentially leading up to one big question. What might Melisandre of Ashai, Priestess of Relore and Shadowbinder, do at the wall with all this potential sorcery at her elegant fingertips? We've talked about a lot of things. Shadow babies and resurrection kisses, total fire transformation, and more. So again, the question is, where is all this headed? First off, Melisandre is definitely thinking about making more and better shadow babies. And this quote is from Melisandre's lone POV chapter in A Dance with Dragons. The carved chest that she had brought across the narrow sea was more than three quarters empty now, and while Melisandre had the knowledge to make more powders, she lacked many rare ingredients. My spells should suffice. She was stronger at the wall, stronger even than in a shy. Her every word and gesture was more potent, and she could do things that she had never done before. Such shadows as I bring forth here will be terrible, and no creature of the dark will stand before them. With such sorceries at her command, she should soon have no more need of the feeble tricks of alchemists and pyromancers. Ooh boys, there are a lot going on here. Ashai and the Wall are both magical places, hinges of the world, which seem to amplify magical spells in their vicinity. Melisandre is basically salivating at this thought, imagining both more and terrible shadow babies and things she had never done before. I wonder what that means. Perhaps raising the dead, or some new form of shadow binding that we haven't seen yet. Or perhaps that's the same thing, since the Relorist resurrection, known as the Last Kiss, seems to be an act of shadow binding, literally binding the shadow of the deceased 
to their reanimated corpse, as we discussed in the Fire Whites video, of course. Consider also that Jon Snow is going to need something of an unprecedented resurrection, or at least <laughs> something that hasn't been done in thousands of years. It's going to be far more complex than Barracks because John is a skin changer. We know from the Vermeer Sixkins A Dance with Dragons prologue that the spirit of a skin changer goes into that of his bonded animal or her bonded animal upon their death. So John will need both a resurrection of his corpse and possibly a bit of help getting out of his wolf. And on top of that, the others could even try to steal his body, as I talked about in the Lord Snow and Promised to the Others videos. Or perhaps Melisandre's Things She Had Never Done Before refers to her ongoing transformation into what I'm calling a fire other. It does seem that each use of Lore's magic, fire magic that is, furthers this transformation and burns out a little more of Melisandre's humanity. So with the wall amplifying her magic, and with the need for tremendous sorcery close at hand, it seems very possible or even likely that Melisandre will complete this transformation and thereby be able to perform new magics. We should also note that Melisandre is essentially proposing to sex magic humanity's way out of War for the Dawn 2.0 when she talks about bringing forth shadows that no creature of the dark will stand before. And yes, that's why I wore my Red Hot Chili Peppers Blood Sugar Sex Magic t-shirt. We have to ask, just how many shadow babies is Melisandre planning to make to defeat the others? How many Night's Watchmen must give of their life fires in brave uh, service to spawn this shadow army chosen by R'hllor, perhaps not as bad as it looked at first? Well, here's where all of our research into shadow binding and R'hllorist resurrection comes into play. Because we now understand that both shadow baby creation and the last kiss resurrection magic can be thought of as shadow binding, and that whites of all kinds can be considered shadows. We can understand that Melisandre isn't necessarily talking about performing sex magic with all the Night's Watchmen, which would be a little over the top from a George, why did you write this perspective? The idea of a Night's Watch full of shadow-bound fire whites, however, well, that makes a damn lot of sense, as we discussed at the end of the Fire Whites video. Beric has shown us that Fire Whites carry the power of fire magic in their burnt, blackened blood, and can therefore use that blood to light their own swords on fire, just like we saw on the TV show. And wouldn't that be useful in the fight against the others and the Whites, as it was on the TV show? Because of George R.R. R. Martin's consistent use of archetypes, we know that anyone wielding a burning sword in this story qualifies as some kind of Azor High parallel figure. And since Beric not only wields a flaming sword, but is now a Firewhite, he's actually a literal warrior of fire, just as Azor High is called the Warrior of Fire and the Champion of R'hllor, who is fire. So there definitely seems to be a message here about Azor High being connected to Firewhite magic. Accordingly, we've seen that the priests of R'hllor believe that death itself will bend its knee to Azor Ahai reborn, and that all those who die fighting in his cause will themselves be reborn. Perhaps this is just metaphysical spiritual salvation talk? But perhaps the original Azor Ahai fought the battles of the Long Night with an army of Firewhites, who, again, can light their own swords on fire at will. 
Jon Snow is an even more important echo of Azor Ahai, of course. And George has called Beric's firewhite status foreshadowing for Jon Snow's eventual resurrection. So with Melisandre hovering over Jon like a hungry cougar who can't get his long face out of her flame visions, hashtag facts, there can be little doubt that Jon will likely end up a firewhite of some kind, and like Beric, he'll be able to light his own sword on fire. And that, by the way, means there's really no reason for Jon to stab Daenerys in the chest to make a flaming Lightbringer sword. That's right, good news. You can absolutely bury that terrible theory in the ground. Even better, when Jon does light his own sword on fire with his own fire-magicked blood, he'll be using Valyrian steel, which, of course, should be able to withstand R'hllor's holy flames much better than Beric's common steel. Fire-whited Jon will be the ideal candidate to face the others, likely alongside Daenerys and her dragons. And he'll be revealed as a fulfillment of the Azor High Reborn prophecy, again, along with Daenerys. So, will Jon be the only Fire White, or might he have some sort of undead fellowship to keep him company? Azor High did not win his war alone, as Melisandre says, and Jon probably can't slay all those others by himself, right? Will those that die fighting alongside Jon Snow be reborn as Fire Whites? I sure hope so, because that's the premise of this video. And if we take a look at Jon's Azor High dream from A Dance with Dragons, we can see some pretty strong foreshadowing for just such a thing. I've quoted this passage many times. It's pretty important. It's Jon's Azor High dream. But let's take a look at it one more time. Stand fast, Jon Snow called. Throw them back. He stood atop the wall alone. Flame, he cried. Feed them flame. But there was no one to pay heed. They are all gone. They have abandoned me. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow and eagle cried as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a graybeard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognized Ygritte. She was gone as quick as she'd appeared. First off, this is very clear Azor Ahai symbolism. Not only the red burning sword and the fight against the forces of darkness, but the part about his slaying Ygritte with that sword. That's a pretty clear echo of Azor Ahai slaying his wife, Nissa Nissa. Jon never did any such thing in real life, of course. He's dreaming about killing Ygritte because he feels responsible for her death and guilty for betraying her, so to speak. But this detail also serves to help the reader identify John's archetypal role here. He's an Azor high figure, defending the wall against undead foes that scuttle up the ice like spiders. We also see a pretty nice ice and fire harmony here with John's burning sword and black ice armor. As befits a man who has the blood of the dragon in his veins, assuming R plus L equals J is true, as well as the blood of the other in his veins, if my theory about the Starks having the blood of the others is true. And that's not just my theory, of course. A lot of people have come to that conclusion. The thing to key in on here is the line about Scarecrow Brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. John is manning the wall alone in this stream, thinking about how everyone has abandoned him save for the scarecrow sentinels that the watch erected to make it look like there were more watchmen than there really were in the fight against the wildlings at Castle Black. In John's dream, these scarecrow sentinels, as the brothers call them, have caught on fire. So could this be a clue about John eventually 
fighting the others with fire-whited Night's Watchmen. Following the lead of Pip, the Black Brothers even take to naming the Scarecrow Sentinels after their fallen comrades. It makes it seem as if there's more of us, Pip says. So they really are like dead Watchmen brought back to life to defend the wall. And now in John's Azor High last battle dream, set on fire. Here's the thing, though. Interpreting the Burning Scarecrow Sentinels, named after Dead Watchmen as Firewhite Foreshadowing, isn't just an intuitive leap, or just a great leap in general. The very first Firewhite we see in the story is referred to as a Scarecrow, and like the Scarecrow Sentinels and all Night's Watch brothers, he's wearing a black cloak. When we left King's Landing, we were men of Winterfell, and men of Derry, and men of Blackhaven, Mallory men, and wild men. We were knights and squires, and men-at-arms, lords and commoners, bound together by only our purpose. The voice came from the man seated amongst the weirwood roots halfway up the wall. Six score of us set out to bring the King's justice to your brother. The speaker was descending the tangle of steps toward the floor. Six score brave men and true, led by a fool in a starry cloak. A scarecrow of a man, he wore a ragged black cloak speckled with stars and an iron breastplate dinted by a hundred battles. A thicket of red gold hair hid most of his face, save for a bald spot above his left ear where his head had been smashed in. More than 80 of our company are dead now, but others have taken up the swords that fell from their hands. When he reached the floor, the outlaws moved aside to let him pass. One of his eyes was gone, Arya saw. The flesh about the socket scarred and puckered, and he had a dark black ring all around his neck. With their help, we fight on as best we can, for Robert and the realm. Robert, rasped Sandor Clegane, incredulous. The king is dead. The Scarecrow Knight admitted, but we are the King's men, though the royal banner we bore was lost at the Mummer's Ford when your brother's butchers fell upon us. He touched his breast with a fist. Robert is slain, but his realm remains, and we defend her. Alright, as I like to say, there's a lot going on here, so... <laughs> Let's start with the basic comparison between Barrack's relore-powered self and the burning Scarecrow Sentinels, which is set up by the use of the word Scarecrow to describe Barrack, both here and elsewhere, and by the fact that Barrack is wearing a black cloak. Though Barrack's has fancy lightning bolts, which we all know would be completely in violation of the dress code at the Wall. Just ask Mance Raider. Barrack is also a member of a brotherhood which defends the realm. It's called the Brotherhood Without Banners and the Forgotten Fellowship. Obviously, the Black Brothers of the Night's Watch are a brotherhood too, and very much forgotten up at the wall. And though they have banners, those banners are black and empty. And the men who join the Watch leave their old banners and shields behind. Then we have the wordplay in lines like, More than 80 of our company are dead now implying Barrack's company as a company of dead men. Or, the king is dead, but we are the king's men. Which kind of makes it sound like this company of dead men serve a dead king. That's a reference to Robert, but they also serve a dead person, Barrack. A fire white with a burning sword, protecting the realm with a ragtag company of forgotten dead men. You can see how this could be foreshadowing for John fighting to save the realm, 
with a group of undead Night's Watchmen. John would also be a dead king like Robert, since he appears to have some claim to the titles of King of Winter and King of the Seven Kingdoms. All right, so hopefully I've painted a good picture of the basic symbolism at work here. Barrick's fire-white nature is a foreshadowing for Jon Snow, and Barrick is implied as defending the realm with a company of dead men. Barrick is combining the symbolism of Azor High with the symbolism of the burning scarecrow Night's Watchman in Jon's dream, a dream where Jon, in turn, is doing his own Azor High impression by defending the wall with a burning red sword. So when we see those burning Scarecrow brothers defending the wall with Azor High John, I think we should imagine a line of fire sword wielding fire whites, a battalion of barracks. Hell, the name barrack could even be a word pun on barracks, as in the name of a building where soldiers live. The chosen soldiers of lore live in fiery barracks slash barracks. And that's actually not a joke. Uh, the barracks at Castle Black are in fact called the Flint Barracks. Flints are things to start fires with, and oh gosh, are those scarecrow sentinels atop the flint barracks? Across the yard, one of the bowmen on the roof of the old flint barracks had unlaced his breeches and was pissing through a crenel. Mully, he knew from the man's greasy orange hair. Men in black cloaks were visible on other roofs and tower tops as well, though nine of every ten happened to be made of straw. The Scarecrow Sentinels, Donald Noy called them. You'll have to excuse Mully's crudeness there, as there's just no time to run to the privy when you're getting ready to fight the wildlings. In any case, this quote does indeed place Scarecrow Sentinels atop the Flint Barracks, which makes sense. Fiery soldiers should live in Flint Barracks, right? This scene is both the introduction of the Scarecrow Sentinels as well as the first time the barracks have been called the Flint Barracks. So this definitely seems like a name that Martin came up with specifically to enhance the imagery of the Scarecrow Watchmen. Then we have the red-headed Mully, who also seems to be placed here to complement the idea of the burning Scarecrows. He's kissed by fire, see? Relore's fiery kiss is, after all, how you make a fiery scarecrow brother. Beric Dondarrion's hair is kissed by fire too. It's actually described as red gold in the quote we read earlier, which, by the way, compares well to Stannis's Azor High crown of red gold metal flames. Mully's hair is sometimes called orange and sometimes red, as those are both ways of describing the same color hair. But what's better is that Mully's fiery, ruddy hair is almost always described as greasy, as it is here, which kind of just makes him sound like a greasy, flaming torch. Going further, because that's what we do here, and because George has said that he places a lot of weight on the names of characters, and in fact seems to design his complementary characters like Mully exclusively to complement the symbolism of a given scene. We might note that the name Mully is given to a red-headed person because mulled wine, a form of heated, spiced wine, is red and warm. Of course, wine is a very common symbol for blood in both the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire. So in the context of Mully's kissed-by-fire hair and the scarecrow sentinels atop the flint barracks, the name Mully seems meant to imply the idea of blood that has been heated or cooked, spiced by relore, if you will. And I also noticed that on Barrack's first death, it is said that 
Thoros drew a foot of lance from his chest that night and poured boiling wine into the hole it left. In other words, the boiling wine that Thoros poured into Beric's chest right before he resurrected him is simply a complementary symbol to the Relorist fire that he breathed down into Beric's chest, with both of those things expressing the idea that Beric's blood is now powered by Relor, or cooked by Relor, we might say. So, just to sum up and... Cram all that into one sentence. Mully is a kissed by fire, greasy torch of a night's watchman, with symbolically cooked blood hanging out with highly flammable scarecrow brothers atop the flint barracks. And that, my friends, is a pretty great clue about night's watchmen who receive the fiery resurrection kiss of R'hllor. One final note on this scene, which again is the introduction of the Scarecrow Sentinels. They are the brainchild of Maester Aemon. Aemon Targaryen, that is, which means that a dragon person created the Scarecrow Brothers, just as the original Azor High may have created his own army of fire whites, his very own battalion of barracks. In any case, oh, what's this? Ravenous Reader has another find relating to burning barracks? Well, okay, I guess this video script isn't too long. I guess we have another five minutes to see what Ravi found, especially since it stars Timot, son of Timot. All right, guys, we're about to do a little bit of a side branch and a deep dive, so hold on to your butts. This may seem a little in the weeds at first, but this is how George Martin weaves his masterpiece of symbolism and archetypal parallels. And check out the George R. R. Martin Master of Archetypes livestream that we just did recently for more on archetypes and George's use of them. So as you all surely remember, there's a mountain clan in the Vale of Arryn, in the Mountains of the Moon, who are called the Burned Men. The Burned Men are led by Timot, son of Timot, who seems to be borrowing Beric's symbolism. He has red kissed by fire hair and one burned out eye, just like Beric. Timot put out his own eye with a white hot knife to prove his manliness, essentially, while Beric's eye was put out with a knife by the mountain. Timot lost his eye in the mountains, Beric lost his eye to the mountain. Now, this is a pretty interesting parallel, right? Seems like we could have another potential echo of the pattern with Timot borrowing Beric's symbolism and then leading a company of burned men. Problem is, the burned men are basically wildlings and they live in the mountains, so they probably don't stay in any barracks. Until they come to King's Landing, that is. Then we read that Tyrion found Timot dicing with his burned men in the barracks. Burned men in the barracks? Well, it's funny because... There totally is a burned man inside Beric, Dondarrion. And why is Timot dicing them? Is he up to some sort of Dr. Frankenstein business here? The next line is Tyrion telling Timot to come to my solar at midnight. A solar midnight is a great description of the long night, if I do say so myself. And that's just when we'll need R'hllor's army of flame and shadow to come pouring out of their barracks. So that's pretty good stuff, a character with clear parallels to Beric, living with burned men in the barracks. Timid's symbolism actually goes a bit further, though, with clear ties not only to Beric, but to Jon Snow and even Bloodraven, who are two dragon men who led the Night's Watch. Just as the last hero, if he has some sort of connection to Azor Ahai, would be a dragon man leading the first Night's Watch. This will also be a great way to emphasize the importance of the intersection between fire magic and weirwood magic, 
which I began talking about in the Fire White's video. The key idea being that Azor High and his fire magic would have come to Westeros during the Long Night and figured into the creation of the Night's Watch and the battle against the others. So, Timot, son of Timot. He's a war chief of the Burned Men, and therefore known as a Red Hand. The Red Hand is actually a very important symbol inside of A Song of Ice and Fire, as it refers to both Fiery Hands, which means Relorism, and Bloody Hands, which means the Weirwoods. The Fiery Hand is an important Relore symbol based on the soldiers of Relore being called the Fiery Hand, and based on the actual Fiery Hand that Makoro gave Victorian. While the Bloody Hands are how the red five-pointed leaves of the Weirwood are basically always described. And that's why I got my LRG red-handed smoking tree man here. As I just mentioned, the idea of Azor High or the last hero, who may be the same person or closely related people, fighting with a Night's Watch battalion of Fire Whites is very much a merging of Relorism and Weirwood magic. Here's what I mean. The first Night's Watch were said to have been organized by the Children of the Forest and would have been armed by the Children with dragonglass weapons as the original Night's Watchmen were for centuries. And I also strongly suspect that the last hero and some of his companions may have been skin changers. I think that's why the last hero has a dog, if you will. But then, of course, if any of them had flaming swords or were made into fire whites, then that would have required wielders of fire magic, which would be where Azor High and his mages would come in. One even imagines that the dragonglass knives that the children of the forest gave them may have been the weapons that such fire whites would have lit on fire with their magical blood. Doesn't have quite the reach, but it'll still do the job. And perhaps this is the explanation for the belief that dragonglass candles must be lit by cutting your hand upon it. So anyway, we see this weirwood fire magic duality with all the parallel characters that we've just been discussing, including Timot. Calling Timot a red hand is like calling him a weirwood leaf, but he's a burned man of a weirwood leaf with a burned eye. Beric and Bloodraven, of course, live in Weirwood Caves and sit amongst Weirwood Roots, with Bloodraven being an actual green seer. But of course, Beric is a burning man, powered by R'hllor, and Bloodraven has the hot blood of the dragon in his veins, with his red eye also burning like the last coal in a dying fire. Jon Snow is the most important character in this grouping, and he prays to the Weirwoods, said his Night's Watch oath to the Weirwoods, and walks beside his Weirwood-colored wolf, which has now, upon his death, become a kind of Weirwood cave home for his dead spirit. But of course, John is also a secret Blood of the Dragon person and a future Firewhite commander of the Watch. John also has a burned hand, which he got fighting against the ice-whited Night's Watch ranger Othor in Mormont's chamber. So... Given that the soldiers of Lore are the fiery hand, this seems like an obvious way to indicate that John will become a soldier of Lore, meaning a firewhite, and perhaps a leader of other firewhite soldiers in a confrontation with the others and their ice whites. John's valor against the white in Mormont's chamber is also the reason why John was given his Valerian steel sword, and indeed John's burned hand will probably hold a burning long claw as he becomes an instrument of both fire magic and the old gods. Timot, son of Timot, well, he's definitely a symbolic instrument of the old gods as well because the name Timothy is comprised of the Greek words for honor and God. Jon Snow's version of the one-eye symbolism that we see in Beric, 
Bloodraven and Timmet son of Timmet, comes in the form of the long eagle claw wound that John took across one of his eyes when he was attacked by Orel's eagle. John even describes the wound as burning, just as Timmet literally burned out his own eye with a white-hot knife, and just as Beric's remaining eye burns with Relor's fire, and just as Bloodraven's one red eye burns like the last coal in a dying fire. In other words, you should be able to see with your own eyes, however many you have, that Timmet, son of Timmet, fits into this fiery leader of a fire-white army family of symbolism very tightly. Then the cherry on top of the Timmet burned man symbolism is the likely fact that the burned men were created by a dragon, just as Aemon created the Scarecrow Sentinels and just as Azor High or his mages would have created his fire-white army. This next quote is from the World of Ice and Fire. Amongst the burned men, a youth must give some part of his body to the fire to prove his courage before he can be deemed a man. This practice might have originated in the years after the Dance of the Dragons, some maesters believe, when an offshoot of the painted dogs were said to have worshipped a fire witch in the mountains, sending their boys to bring her gifts and risk the flames of the dragon she commanded to prove their manhood. Alright, so that's quite the hazing ritual, isn't it? Then in Fire and Blood, we learn that that dragon is probably Sheepstealer, and the fire witch nettles Sheepstealer's rider. And similarly, it says that youths of the burned men were only accounted men when they returned with burns to show that they had faced the dragon woman in her lair. This is pretty righteous foreshadowing, and kind of the reason I went all this way down the timid son of timid rabbit hole. The burned men were created by a dragon and a fire witch, just as John is a dragon and Melisandre the fire witch that will create his fire white army. Continuing that same parallel, we see that Beric has Thoros for his fire witch, as well as Lady Stoneheart and even the ghost of Highheart. So at this point, we should probably imagine that the last hero had some kind of fire magic priestess at his side. Or perhaps Azor High's fire priestess, quote-unquote, was Nissa Nissa, who according to legend gave her fire and life to create his burning Lightbringer sword. What if, instead of a mere mortal, Nissa Nissa was already a magical woman like Melisandre, and perhaps she didn't die when stabbed with Lightbringer, but instead finished a transformation into a fire other or fire white? I'm kind of just spitballing here, but the bottom line is that for fire whites to exist, we need a fire magic priest or a priestess. So let's raise a toast to Timmet, son of Timmet, whose symbolism is simply... Oh, what's this? Timmet, son of Timmet, killed the wine cellar's son when he tried to cheat him at cards? Really? Pinned his hand to the table with a knife and ripped out his throat? Jesus. Well, I guess we won't toast him with wine then. Maybe we'll just move along. Those of you who have been watching my channel for a long while now, and thank you guys, know that I have a more elaborate theory about the last hero and his first group of watchmen being undead watchmen, which is known as Green Zombies Theory. The core idea is that when we hear of the last hero's 12 companions dying, and then later the last hero emerging to lead the, quote, first men of the Night's Watch against the others in the War for the Dawn, we should think about his dead friends coming back to life and becoming those first watchmen. They may have been conscious ice whites like Cold Hands or fire whites like Beric. 
but the clues about the first Watchmen being zombies are abundant. Besides the precedent of Cold Hands as a zombie Watchmen and the fact that John is about to become a zombie Watchmen, as well as all this Scarecrow Sentinel Firewhite stuff, we have lines like this gem from Dolores Ed. We ride at first light, did you hear? Sun or snow, the old bear tells. Sam glanced anxiously at the sky. Snow? He squeaked. We ride? All of us? Well, no, some will need to walk. He shook himself. Dywin now, he says we need to learn to ride dead horses, like the others do. He claims it would save on feed. How much could a dead horse eat? Ed laced himself back up. Can't say I fancy the notion. Once they figure a way to work a dead horse, we'll be next. Likely I'll be the first to... Ed, they'll say. Dying's no excuse for lying down no more. So get on up and take this spear. You've got the watch tonight. Well, I shouldn't be so gloomy. Might be I'll die before they work it out. Might be we'll all die, and sooner than we'd like, Sam thought, as he climbed awkwardly to his feet. So as the brave watchmen prepare to ride forth into the haunted forest, come sun or snow, Ed suddenly catches a vision of undead night's watchmen riding undead horses. Along the same lines, when Lord Commander Mormont ponders the skull in the mouth of the weirwood tree at White Tree, and wishes it could talk to him and reveal its secrets, Dolores Ed pipes up, Bad enough when the dead come walking, now the old bear wants them talking as well. No good will come of that, I'll warrant. Ed is afraid of Lord Commanders that talk to the dead, as they're the type to make you man the watch even after you die. Dolores Ed is definitely a droll fellow, but George is hiding important clues about the true nature of the Night's Watch in his jokes here. I hope you can see that. Rest assured that this commentary is not about the macroeconomic efficiencies of not having to feed undead horses, but about the usefulness of not having to feed undead watchmen who range the haunted forest in the lands of always winter, where food is scarce. Undead Night's Watch brothers, whether made by ice or fire, are basically ideally suited to range into the frozen lands beyond the wall, because they don't need to eat, or sleep, or seek shelter. Cold Hands is untouched by the cold of the north, and it seems reasonable that Firewhites, being powered by R'hllor, could potentially also withstand the cold. Otherwise, I'm not sure what the point of making John into a Firewhite would be, since he's clearly got to go north and battle the others. For all these reasons, Conscious Whites really are the perfect rangers, and if they can light their swords on fire, well, all the better. Thus, the Rolorist idea that Azor Ahai is someone who can raise the dead might line up very well with the idea of undead Night's Watch brothers fighting alongside the last hero and his blade of dragon steel in the first War for the Dawn. I actually came up with those two theories independently, but they ended up at the same place, which is that you need whites to fight the others. I believe this ancient truth is also the reason why the Night's Watch brothers are said to have black blood. Ostensibly, it's just a remark on their allegiance to the Watch, much like a sports fan would say they bleed the color of their favorite team to indicate their loyalty. However, both Fire Whites like Barrack and Ice Whites like Cold Hands have black blood, so if the original Night's Watch were zombies, they'd actually have black blood. The same goes for the wildling belief that red hair is kissed by fire and therefore lucky. This may be another memory of the War for the Dawn, when only the chosen soldiers of R'hllor, who have received the fiery last kiss resurrection, were able to stand against the others. That's what I call lucky. Similarly, the Black Brothers are frequently and repeatedly described as shadows and shadows in black. 
And of course, our research shows that creating a fire white basically amounts to shadow binding the spirit of the deceased back to their reanimated corpse. The Night's Watch is also undead on a thematic level because taking the black is often something people do instead of accepting a death sentence. And it's also a form of permanent exile away from the green lands and your former life. Just as Cold Hands is exiled beyond the wall, essentially. The wearing of all black clothing, as the Black Brothers do, is usually regarded as wearing mourning clothes in the wake of someone's passing. So the Black Brothers are basically attending a permanent funeral at the wall. I think there's even a clever pun happening here. The Night's Watch speak of themselves as the light that brings the dawn and the swords in the darkness. And they wear black mourning clothes. So maybe they're the swords of mourning. And shout out to the black dragon sword Mournblade from the Elric of Melnibene universe. Finally, there are abundant lines about the Black Brothers moving about the castles on the wall like ghosts, or about those castles being homes for ghosts, and so on. All of which you can find in the first three videos of the Green Zombies series. So to sum up, the black-blooded brothers of the Night's Watch are already thematically and symbolically dead, and John's dream seems to depict him defending the wall with a burning sword and an army of burning scarecrow knights like Beric. For anything along those lines to happen, We'll need someone capable of performing several relorist resurrections at the wall, and... Oh, hello, Melisandre. I didn't see you standing there, melting the snow. Such shadows as I bring forth here will be terrible, and no creature of the dark will stand before them. The Black Brothers are already referred to shadows anyway, and when some of the dead ones have been shadow-bound and made into fire whites, burning scarecrow brothers for true, we may finally have a fighting force that the others truly cannot stand against. They'll be led by Jon Snow, Burning Sword in Burned Hand, and all of these Scarecrow brothers should have the same ability to light their swords on fire that Beric has and that Jon will have. Thus, we see that one of Melisandre's most important secrets will turn out to be the knowledge and ability to recreate the fire-white shadow army of the first Azor High, And that's not bad. Well, it's a touch horrific, but it's pretty potent magic. So as I said, Mel is a bit of a cougar, but she probably isn't planning to sex magic her way to defeating the others. She is, however, most definitely thinking about doing some sex magic with John. so be sure to tune in next time for part five, Chosen of R'hllor things are set to get truly freaky. And don't forget to leave a comment on the way out and let me know who you think might join John's fire-white army. Beric himself is already dead in the books, of course. Dolores said would make a lot of sense. Perhaps Tormund, perhaps some of the other Night's Watch brothers, perhaps Pip or Gren, or Mully himself. Maybe we can pull the hound off of the quiet aisle. Maybe Jamie or Brienne will take the flame of life from Lady Stoneheart and take Oathkeeper and make their way up to the wall. Let me know in the comments below, and I'll see you real soon with part five, Chosen of R'hllor.